Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Hey, this is Connor Holloway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Listen, we just had Brian Gans of Security Devices International slash Burna up. And Brian is a self-proclaimed, and I'll proclaim it as well, serial entrepreneur. This dude has owned a gazillion businesses. He was owning one of the biggest tire companies in the world at one point, Agricultural Tires. And he now runs a personal security company. And so... At the start of the episode, he kind of discussed his early entrepreneurial beginnings. He was at Columbia, and he was trading options. Then he scaled his family's tire business, turned into Galaxy Tire, and he was selling tires to like all these massive like agricultural machinery distributors, so like tractors. He was making all the tires for stuff like that. He ended up getting hit with a stick talk of a lawsuit. And he said he lost $45 million. Wild. And then, um, you know, he had some personal things unfold for him. And he took over in March, Security Devices International. And he came up here on a big sales pitch, pitching the Burno, which is a personal security device. And it's pretty sweet, man. We really, really enjoy the episode over here. Um, He pointed the gun at me a couple times with the laser pointer, which was pretty terrifying. But, yep. It was a blast. And additionally, this podcast is now live on the Alexa. And you'd only know that if you bump this. But go into your Alexa app, go into skills in games, search Golden Deer, Big Fresh Coded Up, enable the skill, and then say, hey, Alexa, play GDP Minute, and it will play. We're the first ones with that. Shouts to Big Fresh. That's a GDP Minute. Let's go. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter. Just, you forgot to enter. Okay, again, so we'll, we'll rip this one fast. Hey, this is Connor Holloway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and if you by chance get any sort of value from this episode, whether you laugh, you cry, or you learn something, just share it with a friend. Part two, our podcast is now live on Alexa, so we don't trigger it. You just have to go into your skills and games, and then search Golden Deer, enable our skill, and then you can just say, hey, Alexa, play GDP Minute. And it will play. That's part two. Part three. The GDP pieces are flying. I'm a traveling salesman. If you'd like one, just hit me up. I'll show up to your grandma's wake. I'll show up to the cemetery. I will show up to a bridal shower to sell these things. And now the third part of the intro. Let's introduce ourselves, please. Yo, yo. Big Fresh checking in. And celebrity guest number one, C-Mac producing... For his third episode, happy to be here and introduce the real celebrity guest to my left. Hey, that was great. Thank you. And on my right, I have Brian Gans. And I'm wildly, he came with an elaborate setup and I'm really, really excited to learn the the product he's creating about some of the awesome entrepreneurial stuff you've done in your career, man. Am I the celebrity guest? You are. Wow, that's the uh, first time ever. Well, hey, welcome to the Golden Hours, man. <laughs> um, can you give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm the president and uh, CEO of a company called Burna, B-Y-R-N-A, and we produce non-lethal personal security devices. And before that, you had a, a long eclectic mix of entrepreneurial projects. Can you just give a quick synopsis of where you started? I, I've been a, a serial entrepreneur. I, I have to say that uh, I've never had anybody's signature on my paycheck other than my own. Wow. Um, 
I went to Columbia Law School, and while I was in law school, I was addicted to trading options. That was before cell phones, and I would run down to the payphone between classes. And by the time I got to my third year, I started an investment advisory firm and uh, never went to my third year law school, although I did graduate from Columbia Law School, and started an investment advisory firm doing option trading. And we, uh, we raised about $500 million over 10 years, which back then was a fair amount of money. What about when you were at Georgetown? Did you have any early college businesses? At Georgetown, I always worked, but I didn't have any businesses that I, I started. So the first business that I started was when I was in law school. So, so back th- when did you understand, like, wow, I really have like a something in my brain that allows me to build businesses pretty fast? Or like, I just love this. Was there ever any like trigger moment for you? No, no. I just always like bossing people around. Yeah. So that was, that was really <laughs> You're not neat. alone, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who wanted to work for somebody else? I figured I would be a terrible employee. I wouldn't make it a day. So, uh, you know, a- actually when I was in law school, I got married going into my uh, third year. How old were you? I was 24 years old. Oh, man. And my wife uh, was at BC Law. And she was trying to transfer to Columbia, and she couldn't just, you know, audit it. She had to actually transfer in, and we got married on August 15th. We went on our honeymoon, not knowing if we would be together the next year. When we got back, there was an acceptance letter from Columbia. And And you uh, were pumped. And I was pumped, and we moved uh, down to New York. And she took all the classes, and I started my first business with the understanding that if I could get it up and running, and I was making more than I would make as a first-year lawyer, I would keep the business running. And if not, I would interview and get a job at a law firm. And thank God that uh, things went well. And uh, it was a good time. I mean, we were starting the business in 1982. That was the beginning of the bull market. And, this uh, is like early Wolf of Wall Street days, kind it of. It was exactly Wolf of Wall Street days. Okay. So it was, it was a good time to start off. Uh, nobody really understood options back then. Uh, I was, uh, you know, really mathematically inclined, and you know there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of option premium in the market. Uh, it, the options were just misvalued. Today, uh, that opportunity doesn't exist. But it was, you know, for a while like shooting fish in a barrel. Okay, so I'm going to sound totally brain dead here, but can you just give a quick synopsis on what options are, and what they were, and what you're, what you were doing. Okay, so uh, options are... I'm not a finance guy. I'm a marketing guy, but the numbers, man, oof. Yeah, uh, we always made fun of you marketing guys over (laughs) finance. You're not real business. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. No, an option is the right to buy something else. You have an option, a a call option is the right to buy something, an underlying security or stock in this case, uh, and a put option is the right to sell something to somebody. So if I have a December 21 call uh, with a strike price of $30 on a particular stock, that gives me the right to buy that stock at $30 uh, anytime prior to expiration on December 21. Um, so that option may only cost $2. If the stock goes to 40, I can make you know $8 on a $2 investment rather than trying to put up $30 to own the stock and you know have the okay. opportunity to make 10. I get it. Kinda. You guys get it, right? I got you. See Max big accounting guy. Yeah, so. but th- that business was 30 years ago, so that's okay. Now you can do all that on Robinhood. I was doing it just the other day, actually, for the first time. Oh, and actually, if you send me a link to Robinhood, you can get a, a discount. A free stock, I believe. A free stock? Yeah. All right, let's do it. 
right. seems like a good business idea. Um, okay, so so you're 24. You're at Columbia Law. You're trading options. Then when do you start ushering into like that big business? You know what I'm saying? When do you, when do you start realizing? Wow, like I'm. This is kind of a gift of mine. I think I could probably elevate my career pretty fast. Well, we we um. We built the business. I had two partners. We built the business up uh, pretty big. We we went through the stock market crash in 1987, and uh, you know a number of our clients pulled out. We were running money primarily for big corporations. For uh, we had money with uh, Hallmark, NCR, Con Edison. So most of our uh, most of our clients were corporations. And after the stock market crash, a lot of them got out of this game. Um, in 1991, uh, the market, uh, you know, crashed again, and at that point, we had made a lot of money. And uh, my partners and I decided to. Were you feeling fulfilled by the work? <sighs> yes and no. I mean, you know, it had gotten a little bit old. We decided to shut down the business. At, you know, at that point, I was at the ripe age of 31 years old, and um, take a few years off. And I decided to do all the things that uh, I'd wanted to do. I got my pilot's license. I got my scuba diving license. I bought a, you know, antique Austin Healey. And so you um, were just balling. Yeah, I was just having fun. And I was trading my own account. And you were married. I was married. And one day my wife comes home. And I'm sitting on the couch in my underwear watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. And she just looks at me and she says, no. No, no, this is not going to work. Together, yeah, man. exactly. <laughs> you need to get a job. Um, and at that time, uh, my dad was running a family tire business uh, up in Boston. We were living in uh, uh, Westport, Connecticut at the time. And we decided to move to Boston. You grew up around here, though, right? I did. I grew up in Belmont. Okay. Are you, do you know um, the Tossie family? Yeah. They own the Belmont car wash. Yeah. I, I, I don't know them personally but i okay. i know of them he the guy when i was doing some research on some of the stuff you were doing we had a paul tossy up here who actually ran his family's car wash and then ended up becoming a crazy entrepreneur as well so there were some parallels between your story but continue sorry yeah so i um we moved up to boston at the time uh the, the business which was a family business started by my granddad uh, was doing about 19 million in sales, and we were basically in the agricultural, industrial, and construction equipment tire market, and we were a reseller. So my dad was was kind of an amazing deal guy, and whenever there was a great deal around the world, he would buy it up for pennies on the dollar and then make a business out of disposing of it. So when the Alaskan pipeline was finished, there was a huge amount of earth-moving tires left over. He went and he bought them all up, how did he find the deal? He was, that was his gift. I mean, he just had a nose for deals. He was like, I know there are extra tires up yeah, there. Let's go up yeah. there. When uh, the Somoza regime fell in Nicaragua, uh, there was a huge stockpile of tires because uh, he was getting kickbacks from one of the major rubber companies here in the U.S. that I won't mention. Um, but my father went down there and bought all the tires from the Somoza regime. Uh, there was another rubber company that ended up with a bunch of tires that just failed in cold weather. And he ended up buying those and selling them into the Middle East. So that was sort of his business. Yeah, like a sixth sense for yeah, fun. And, and he, wherever there were mistakes. So if Goodyear in France produced too many t tires, 
it was difficult for them to get rid of because they didn't want to flood the market. And they knew if my dad bought them, he would be very careful about getting them into the market. So he would pick up on the mistakes made by the major rubber companies. Um, but with the advent of computers, uh, you know, production planning got much, much better, all these MRP systems, and those deals started to dry up. And by the time uh, I came into the business in 1991, that business had really uh, disappeared. And, you know, the business had been stagnant for years. I think he was at the same level of sales for five or six years. How old was he at the time? My dad was 24 years older than me, so he was 55. Okay. Um, and uh, so uh, he was looking for, for deals, and that business that he had just didn't exist anymore. A couple of years earlier, though, he had bought all of the molds from B.F. Goodrich when they went out of business. So your dad was a schemer. Yeah, and, and you know, he... He really didn't understand how to make tires at all, but he bought all of the agricultural molds from B.F. Goodrich, which when they decided to get out of the agricultural tire market, and they were the biggest seller of agricultural tires in the United States at the time. But, you know, you guys are too young to remember this. At the time, they had come out with a, a passenger car tire called the B.F. Goodrich Radial TA. It was a tire with raised white letters, and every kind of hot rodder and sports car guy had to have them. Yeah, I've seen. I think uh, Speed Racer had BF Goodrich tires, right? <laughs> exactly. So when he when BF Goodrich decided to get out of the business, he bought the molds, and he tried to get the major rubber companies to uh, produce tires for him. Um, you know, and the th the theory was good. You know, they've got a lot of excess capacity. You know, why don't they use it up producing tires for my dad? Uh, they all decided that they didn't want the competition. So it was impossible for him to put the molds to work. Um, when I came into the business, what we decided to do was to pivot. And we were really going to become a manufacturing company. So I sent out, there was no email at the time, I sent out a fax to the 133 private tire companies around the world, explaining that we had bought these molds from BF Goodrich. We had our own brand name, which was Galaxy. And we wanted to produce molds. Were they interested? And um, we got a response from about 17 companies from Colombia, Hungary, Romania, Poland, Egypt. Uh, and I went on a world tour. And I started going to each of these factories and trying to cut deals. And um, we started producing the Galaxy brand. Uh, this was fresh off the Rocky and Bullwinkle days? Fresh out the Rocky and Bullwinkle days. So, what a life you live in. So you, you had your pilot's license, school license, watching cartoons, now you travel in the world. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, it was the first time. Because on Wall Street, you know, everybody I dealt with was very homogeneous. We all went to the same schools. We looked the same. We lived in the same places. You know, now I'm getting a chance to go to Egypt and South Africa. In fact, South Africa was where uh, we did our first big deal. Um, we probably produced over the years more than $500 million of tires in South Africa. Wow. South Africa at the time, uh, I went there the very first time, Nelson Mandela was still in prison. There was still uh, apartheid. What do they speak? Afrikaans? Is that what they speak? Uh, they speak English and Afrikaans. Afrikaans. But, uh, but, but everybody who speaks Afrikaans also speaks English. So mm -hmm. English is the language of business down there. Um, do you know any Afrikaans still? No. No, I never spoke Afrikaans. You're the American guy. And, and everybody really did English, business in English. And, and frankly, one of the things that most people don't understand is everybody still does business in English. So when I went to deal with Continental Tire in Germany, based in Hanover, you go into their corporate office and everybody speaks English. 
because they've got offices all over the world and not everybody speaks German. So even though it's a German company based in Germany and the headquarters, everybody speaks English. We, we take that for granted sometimes. Yeah. And, that, we and just that's true. We speak the universal business language. Yeah. We speak the language of all pilots. Um, you know, wherever you fly, uh, the language is English. But, but in business, pretty much the language is English. And I learned probably, you know, 25 key industry words in, you know, 15 different languages. But Money. I never, I, <laughs> mostly tires, tires, tire language. Rubber. Yeah. So, uh, but I never really uh, picked up a second language. And, and I have no, to say, and I'm no so is universal, right? No is universal. Yeah. You know what word, though, was really interesting is uh, similar in a lot of languages. I'm, I'm in Russia uh, one day, and uh, this is back before e-tickets. All the tickets were paper tickets. And I'm flying from uh, from the Ukraine. I'm in Kiev, which is in the news now. And I'm flying to Minsk. And on my ticket, it says standby. Well, there's no standby in Russia. Standby was when they sent you to Siberia, told you to stand by for 10 years. Exactly. So this woman, she's, she's screaming at me in Russian. I have no idea what she says, but there's one word that's the same in English and Russian. Problem. <laughs> problem. In Serbian, problema. So problem is a pretty universal word. So I knew that I had a problem. So and I, she I, knew too. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and I keep walking up, walking back, walking up. Finally, and this is before the euro, I give her my ticket and a 20 D mark, 20 Deutschmark note. And she says, yet problem. And she writes something on my ticket, just on the jacket of the ticket where it says like rent from Avis. And she says, uh, you know, points go over there. I don't know if I'm being arrested for trying to bribe this woman. As it turns out, you know, I go in to like this Quonset hut waiting area and they grab some guy and yank him out. I had just bought for his for seat it. for 20 D-marks. <laughs> and now he's stuck in Siberia, yeah. man. Had, had I known, I would have given her 60 D-marks and get the whole row because everybody stunk on the plane. And, uh, oh, man. What but, do you think that guy's doing now? You want to ruin his <laughs> life for good. Yeah, he's probably still on standby. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're traveling the world. You're growing Galaxy Tire. I mean, I know we're totally expediting probably all the blood, sweat, and tears. But what is the goal at this point? You just want to grow the company or do you want to be the biggest national tire company, international? You know, uh, the, the goal for all business people is growth. I mean, you want to grow the business and you want to grow the profitability. But in particular, we were hoping to take the company public. And we were actually in the process of doing that when we were hit with an anti-dumbing uh, lawsuit from the Department of Commerce. And that completely derailed the company. And, Ugh, uh, and, uh, and and we actually ended up going bankrupt. We spent $8 million on lawyers, which in retrospect, if I had known then what I know now, um, I wouldn't have fought the case. I would have just moved our factory. At the time, we owned three factories, but our biggest factory was in China. And it was a, some sort of environmental issue? No, it was an anti-dumping case so, elaborate so uh dumping is when uh the u.s government claims that you're selling below your cost now my head would snap off before i would sell below my cost exactly but um and and they hit us also with a countervailing duty case claiming we were getting subsidies from the chinese government now it was complete bs i mean we were we were not selling below cost we were not getting subsidies from the u.s government but it was a pol purely political process 
And um, I was going to say, did someone have beef with someone in your company? Or? No, it was it was one of our competitors filed a. It's called a petition. So they filed an anti-dumping petition against us. Weak. Um, you know, and they claimed that we had injured them. Now the interesting thing it was Titan Tire and Wheel. Titan Tire and Wheel during that five-year period that they claimed they were injured, their stock had gone from seventy-five cents to forty dollars. They were the second best performing stock on the New York Stock Exchange. Not second percentile, yeah, number they were, two. They were definitely struggling. Yeah, so, you know, I, I was incredulous. And when I was in front of the tribunal, uh, the International Trade Commission, I said, you know, if that's, you know, if that's harm, throw me in that same briar patch. I mean, how can they, with a straight face, claim harm? What, were they, they wanted to be the number one performing stock? But again, it was a very, very political situation. And... Um, you know, when I went there, he, he had a unionized company, and there were 500 union workers sitting in the courtroom. Who's he? This is the CEO of Titan? CEO of Titan, a guy named Maury Taylor. Um, I, I don't even know if, uh, if he's still alive. Um, and all of the uh, senators and congresspeople can come in and make a statement. So this is their chance to get in front of the oh, so God, camera. The, so this case got that big. Was yeah, this is a this was a very very big case. It was very public. Yeah. Okay. This is before we're born, or yeah, this was in uh, uh, two thousand and six. Okay. Well, I was eleven. Okay. <laughs> How old were you guys? Yeah, I was ten, so wasn't yeah, paying much attention. Okay. <laughs> so you know, each of these senators would stand up, and it's a chance for them to you know uh, show their you know anti-China bona fides. And they, you know, they would point to me and they say, you know what's wrong with America? Mr. Gans, that's what's wrong with America. He took American jobs and sent them to China. The fact of the matter is we had been trying to buy a factory in the U.S. for years. And every time Goodyear or Firestone or General Tire shut down a factory, we tried to buy it. But what these companies would do is they would... Uh, sabotage the factory so they couldn't be used again to make tires. So with an acetylene torch, they would burn a hole in every press so that these things became unusable because they didn't want somebody else stepping they in. Competition, they didn't yeah. want the competition. So, you know, as much as we wanted to produce in the U.S., we were just thwarted at every turn. And the only way we were able to uh, produce was to purchase factories overseas, generally through uh, the privatization processes. Which is pretty common at the time, right? Yeah, it, it, it was very common. So there was never a single job that we moved from the U.S. And in fact, uh, you know, when I joined the company, there were 21 employees. At its peak, we had 3,300 employees. Wow. Of which 500 were in the U.S. So all the design, development work, you know, was all done in the U.S. All the, all the labor was just done yeah, internationally. It, it, exactly. So... Just for clarification, when you say you're the biggest agriculture tire, tire company, that means like for tractors and bulldozers, you were the, the ones producing the tires, correct? Yeah, and, and we weren't the largest, but we were the largest that was focused solely on this type of product. So we, our big customer was John Deere, Caterpillar Tractor, Case New Holland. So big tires. B big tires, industrial tires, tires used on you know farm vehicles and on earth moving equipment and you know, anything that's used by a business. So we were actually a very, very good barometer for how the health of the economy was. Because if a lot of product was being moved in warehouses, forklift tires wear out. When the forklifts aren't moving that much, they don't wear out. When trucks are moving, tires wear out. Same thing with produce, right? Yeah. 
So, so we could see from our demand, you know, what the real strength of the economy was. So I would always talk with my friends who were still on Wall Street. They'd always be asking me how my business was going because they gave them a good window into, you know, what the economy was going to uh, show for numbers. What did uh, what were your friends saying at this time that you were like kind of heading up this booming tire company and they're all still like on the Wall Street nine to five crazy hustle? You know what? Uh, all my friends made a lot of money on Wall Street, so I'm I don't. Sure. I don't think anybody was, you know, jealous of me. So but, you know, what I what I did was a lot of fun, and I think you know, had we been able to uh, take the company public, it it would have really been a, a big win. Uh, I ended up, you know, at the time we went bankrupt, I probably had about forty five million dollars of stock that disappeared. So you know, it, it 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 could have been a, a big win. Unfortunately, uh, we ended up, you know, with a a big loss. The only positive that came out of it was um, that we paid off all of our debts. Nobody lost any money other than the shareholders that were mostly family. Was there any like aha learning moment for you from the whole process? Or Yeah, don't fight City Hall. Okay. <laughs> they're, so, the, they're the real boss. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and at the end of the day, I ended up uh, with my brother buying one of the divisions of the company. Um, and we bought it for 16 million. We sold it for 66 million three years later. So we made back a little bit of what we had lost. Which division was this? It was the solid tire division. Okay. So uh, these are solids, uh, solid tires that go on forklifts and other industrial uh, pieces of equipment. And with it, we bought the factory in China that was at the heart of this whole thing because the factory was somewhat toxic. You know, you couldn't make anything in that factory and ship it to the US anymore because the duties were 44%. Um, so solid tire as opposed to like a treaded tire? No, solid tire as opposed to a pneumatic tire, so an air-filled tire. So okay. instead of being filled with air, it's just a completely solid rubber okay. tire. And was that a, is that somewhat of a specialized product? It's a very specialized product. So it's a relatively small market, um, very specialized product. Uh, you know, it, it, it frankly was not as complicated a product to build as pneumatic tires. Um, and we, we ended up, uh, you know, selling the factory off in China. We ended up selling the business. So, you know, three years later, 2012, I bought the uh, company at the beginning of 2010 out of the bankruptcy court. And uh, we sold it at the very end of 2012. So almost seven years ago now. What was your day-to-day -day like when you started getting hit with all these suits? Like, were you just totally stressed all the time or like, were yeah, you just I would, pissed? I, I was spending a, a significant amount of, money, amount of my time in Washington, D.C. trying to line up political support because this was a purely political matter. And, um, you know, we, uh, we really didn't get much support because, you know, supporting China was not something that people wanted to do. There was a senator at the time from Maine, Olympia Snow, who was very, very nice. His name was Olympia Snow? Uh, uh, her name. Her name. Olympia Snow. Sounds like a movie star kind of, doesn't it? Uh, she, she, was, uh, she was a rock star. She was just a great senator, and she was very, very uh, helpful to us, but she was very candid with us. She said, look, Brian, I can't support you publicly because that will be the ad they run in my next com campaign, Olympia Snow supports sending jobs to China. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we couldn't get anybody to speak on our behalf. The only senator that agreed to do it was Senator Ted Kennedy. 
Wow. And if you remember, he developed brain cancer during this process and was unable to speak on our behalf, but he was really uh, an amazing individual. Um, you know, I'll tell you, John Kerry's office would not give me the time of day. Uh, but we, we really... And you were reaching out to Massachusetts-based politicians saying, hey, I'm a mass guy. And, and Maine. We had a factory in Maine. We had distribution centers in Pennsylvania, in Florida, in Texas, in California. So we reached out to all of the places where we were employing people. Like I said, we employed 500 people. So we had big distribution centers, and, uh, although, and, and we actually had a factory for solid tires in Maine. Um, so although we weren't producing pneumatic tires in the U.S., we still had a big footprint. And so, so now it would be really hard to run Galaxy, right, in today's political climate? Yeah, look, I... I because isn't Trump... I mean, again, I'm totally not politically conscious in terms of all the... In CMAC, you probably know more than I would, but one of Trump's main policies is American jobs first, correct? Yeah, and look, I mean, they've imposed, you know, significant duties on Chinese goods again. So, you know, I I know that a lot of companies are like we were, are struggling. Um, the only thing that they have to look forward to is that, you know, hopefully there'll be a trade deal with China, and this isn't permanent. For us, uh, the banks continued to finance us until we actually lost the case, and it, and it was permanent. And at that point, the uh, U.S. government assessed 44% duties on all of our products. Uh, we only had a 24% margin, so we lost 20 cents for every dollar of sales, and the bank pulled the plug immediately. Um, so did that just totally, and this is going to sound stupid, but just like suck the fun out of business for you? Because now you're just dealing with legislative stuff all the time. And I'm sure yeah, it, your real rush is growing your company. It, it, it did. I mean, as I said, I spent a lot of time in Washington. We spent $8 million on lawyers. and But I think the, the most tragic part of it was uh, my wife developed cancer during this period of time. And, you know, we were convinced it was from the stress of uh, the situation uh, she passed away in uh, the end of um, the very beginning of 2012. I'm so sorry, man. So it was, you know, it was a catastrophic, <laughs> catastrophic uh, period of my life because the business went bankrupt. My my wife passed away at a very young age. So, one, I'm very sorry. Okay, thank you. It's, it was seven years ago now. So are you? Uh, so all this bad stuff's happening to you, how do you kind of pick up the pieces at the time, or did you just take a break? Well, we ended up, uh, as I said, we ended up selling the business that I had purchased out of bankruptcy. We, as I said, we bought it for $16 million, we sold it for $66 million, and um, my wife passed away at the beginning of 2012, and I sold the business at the end of 2012, and I really, at that point, just thought I would, you know, not work anymore, I would retire. There was a, a business that... Were you just exhausted? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as my dad always used to say, there's plenty of time to sleep when you're dead. So, <laughs> you know, pick up the pieces and move on. My wife had started a business with me, and um, it was a real estate business, and I continued to run that. That must and, have been nice for you, right? Yeah. And, and it, we still run it to this day, uh, Scudder Bay. We own uh, 250 rental properties in Massachusetts. Oh, just a little side project for you, huh? Well, there's 250 units. <laughs> well, it's actually for, you know, for that type of business, it's a small business. Um, you know, the but when you're owning like a publicly traded company and operating that, I'm, you know, how do you ever shut your brain off, man? 
Oh, you know, it's, uh, I have to say, I obviously like working. I don't think I'd ever, you know, completely retire. But, you know, at some point I need to work a little less. Mm-hmm. What is your, what's your work week like now? Like, I, when, I would, when did I, you and I hop on a call? I think it was a Sunday. I was, yeah, like, I, I was like, all right, Brian's playing at my speed. I love it. I, I would say now, uh, at this point in the development of Berna, it's a 24-7 business. Um, you know, uh, one of the things we're trying to do is figure out, you know, marketing avenues. Uh, I've been going to gun shows every weekend, uh, just trying to see what sort of market we have at the gun shows, which is our reception has been phenomenal. So we, we think we need to really expand this. Um, I was at the Wilmington show, not this last week and the weekend before. And, um, you know, we just knocked the ball out of the park. And I spoke to one of the vendors there, and uh, they were saying that they go to 120 gun shows a weekend. So, you know, we looked at this one gun show. We made $7,000 for the weekend. You know, can we go to 50 gun shows a, a weekend and, and make 350 So how does this birth out of you just running the real estate company? Were you just bored and you're like, hey, man, it would be awesome to own a gun or... No, I I, mean, I, I I am a gun owner, but that was not how I got into this. Um, you you the, can take a big swig of that if you want. Yeah, I'm getting a little parched. Okay, go ahead. Does anyone else need to take a sip? Okay, so... Hey, you guys having fun? Of course. Cool. <laughs> um, there were a couple of investors who were friends of mine that owned stock in a company called Security Devices International, which and, is now your company. Which is now this company that... Come you on, know, man. It's yours. It's yours. <laughs> no, it's a public company. It's not mine. Uh, I just have to be, happen to be the temporary steward of the company. But um, it, it wasn't doing well. And they wanted me to take a look at, you know, turning it around. It was actually an acquisition that the board was looking to make. And then they knew that, you know, I had a lot of manufacturing experience and asked me to take a look at it. And when I took a look at the company... I told these guys that, you know, uh, first, they shouldn't make the acquisition. The f- factory they were looking to buy was just, you know, uh, a Terrible. complete basket case. And they were, you know, I thought the books were cooked and, uh, you know, they were just going to get themselves into big trouble. I said, but the bigger issue is you guys are burning cash at an amazing rate and you're not going to make it through the year. And I don't see any way that, you know, sales are going to pick up. I think the, uh, the economic model is wrong. And you need to make some changes. Before so, the burn, it was it was like an ammunitions company for the most part. Yeah, it, it, it made and it still makes uh, what's called a 40 millimeter impact round. So it's a it's a big honking round that's shot out of a grenade launcher, actually. And, uh, you know, you hit somebody with it, they drop like a sack of potatoes. But don't die. But they don't die. There's it's uh, they call it less lethal, but it's really a non-lethal weapon. Um, it's used for crowd control. It's used in prisons. It's used by SWAT. It, um, it's gas. It, no, it's it's fired. You know, with a thirty-eight blank. So, so it's, it's just like a brick hitting you. Yeah, and it's got two hundred joules of energy. So you know, it's uh, sort of twice uh, the energy of a you know of a, a fastball or twice the energy of a Wayne Gretzky slap shot. I mean, it it, it really knocks the crap out of you, and. Um, but it can only be purchased by law enforcement and military. So there's no consumer market for it. And you still sell this, correct? Are we, and we still sell this. But selling to law enforcement is a difficult sale because in this country, uh, unlike actually most countries, we've got 18,500 agencies and they all make their own procurement decisions. So, 
you got to go to Lexington and Waltham and oh. Somerville and Cambridge and you know every little town, and they all want a live fire demonstration. Nobody's going to buy a weapon without seeing it operate. So who's the master salesman? So we had a number of former police officers that were going around putting on demonstrations, and the model just didn't work for us because even if we sold 100 rounds, it was a $2,300 sale, and just the cost of putting these guys In on the time. road. Yeah. So, you know, it was clearly non-economical. And Sorry to cut you off, but so what Brian means is when it comes to purchasing non-lethal weapons, it's, it's by certain police department so police department makes the individual decision so what he's saying instead of like other countries let's say you were to go to this is just an example if you were to go to egypt all police departments would have the same exact policy so you would just sell to one person then you'd apply it to every police department but in the u.s you have to go to like somerville pd said hey dude check my gun out do you like it he says no then you walk over to everett and say hey man do you like it Exactly. Exactly. So it, you know, it it was a, it was an expensive sales process, and we needed to pivot. We needed to either come up with a new product, or we needed to come up with a change in this product so that we could address the private security market, which is over a million private security guards, um, and more importantly, the consumer market, which is you know hundreds of millions of people, and also people who don't want to kill people. They want to protect themselves. That's the real market, right? Exactly. So as a gun owner, you know, uh, if if I'm honest with myself, you know, I, I wonder how quick would I be to pull the trigger. So, you know, uh, uh, it's a burden carrying a gun. You know, you pull that out, you better be prepared to use it. Every year, police officers kill hundreds of people that are unarmed, and they're trained to assess the threat. If they're trained to make these mistakes, what what chance do I have of getting it right? And if I hesitate... Is that a fatal second for me? And if I don't hesitate, do I make a fatal mistake? So it, it's a huge burden. I mean, does it rest on my conscience forever? Yeah, I mean, even if it's justified, your life changes forever. It changes legally, it changes financially, it changes psychologically and emotionally. I mean, taking a life, even when a law enforcement officer does it, I mean, usually requires a lot of you know counseling and it's a, a very very serious thing yeah you don't for, really ever forget about that if you kill someone man yeah so so we wanted to come up with something where you could be safe you could deter disarm stop an assailant without the risk of taking a life so a, as a result you're going to pull the trigger more quickly i mean if if i if i get it wrong you know and i shoot the paper boy you know sorry my bad i'll leave a bigger tip at christmas but you know an hour later Everybody's fine. You've kind of been throwing paper uh, at my window (laughs) every morning. Kind of deserve this, dog. Take this. Exactly. Was there ever like a a moment where you had an inception like, hey, we should make a a gun that doesn't kill someone? Like, what was that for you? Or were you like, I need to develop a new product to kind of revitalize this company? We needed to develop a new product. And what happened was initially we wanted to take the 40 millimeter launcher and, and make it so that it didn't fall under the purview of the ATF, alcohol, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, or the State Department, which regulates these 40 millimeter launchers. Um, so we had to, one, make it gas fired instead of fired with a 38 blank, and we had to take the rifling out of the barrel. And for non-gun people, the rifling is what causes the bullet to spin, and the spin stabilizes it. So 
If it doesn't spin, it's a Tim Wakefield knuckleball. If it does spin, it's a Tom Brady spiral. And in order to have any accuracy, you need to have the, the bullet spinning. So without the rifling in the barrel, we couldn't really get the round to be very accurate. Now, I had met an inventor at the SHOT Show a couple of years earlier who had come up with a concept for putting a tail fin on a projectile and causing it to spin as it went through the air. And I reached out to him to license uh, the technology for 40 millimeter. And when I met with him, you know, he said that this can be used for uh, other things as well. And we discussed the possibility of putting this into a handheld device. Because I thought that the market for 40 millimeter was maybe, you know, 10,000 Michigan militia guys that wanted to, you know, shoot watermelons off their fence at 150 feet. But that the market for a personal security device that was concealable, that you could put in your glove box, your nightstand, that market was in the millions. It looks kind of swag. Yeah, and it looks very, very cool. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a Glock. You know what? I, I carry a, a Glock uh, 19, a 9mm, and it was designed to look like a Glock. Yeah. And the dimensions of it uh, are almost identical to a Glock. So this way is identical to a Glock. Just hold up a little bit so we can get it in the $100,000 camera. This way is identical to a Glock. This way is identical to a Glock. It is a little bit thicker because you're shooting a 68 caliber projectile. So the barrel is a little bit bigger than it would be if it's a nine millimeter or 45. Yeah, but, but if I was to see you outside and you point this at me without seeing the... Yeah, and, and, and look, I think that, you know... That shit looks real like a real When gun. I put the laser sight Whoa. on, you know, so uh, I'll just put it on you for a second. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think, you know, look, if you're facing this, and you get hit with one of our hard plastic projectiles, although the, the report on it is not as loud as a gun, it hurts like hell when you get hit. Does it knock the wind out of you? More. Um, you know, Brace it, your ribs? Uh, no, it, it, won't, it won't break the skin, won't break your ribs, but it hurts like hell. If you go on uh, our website, there's a video of me getting hit with it in the leg. You're and a it, sicko. And, <laughs> you just signed up for that? Yeah. Look, I, I couldn't get anybody else to do it, so, you know, the buck stops with me. Yeah, I guess, man. But, uh, yeah, if you look at that video, I'm saying a few choice curse words when I get hit. I, I think if somebody didn't know, they might think that they got, got shot. shot. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's, you know, it's been very effective. And the interesting thing is when I give my little pitch at these gun shows, I, I say exactly what I say to you, which is, you know, I'm not sure that I'm willing to pull the trigger. And if I'm not willing to pull the trigger, I ought to carry something that I am willing to pull the trigger. I don't, I used to carry my Glock all the time. Like and walking through mass? All, all the time. I have a concealed carry permit and I always uh, carried. And the reason I always carried is I'm a pilot. And as a pilot, you learn to be prepared. So they say, you know, the three most wasteful things are the charts that you, you know, left in the trunk, the fuel that you left back in the tanks, and the in the pump and the runway that's behind you so don't be unprepared so your mind it's like in the gun that's in my bureau yeah so you know i always felt like you know it's going to be that one time that i'm out with my daughter that we get accosted i'm going to say why didn't i carry my gun today so if you're going to carry it ever my attitude was you carry it all the time but as i said that's a huge burden yeah were you paranoid all the time no not not at all but i felt like number one i was well trained because of the industry that i'm in and uh you know i felt that uh 
if there was ever a need for it. And, and look, the gun is an insurance policy. Um, you know, when I bought my uh, first Glock, I bought a box of 50 hollow points, which are self-defense rounds. Okay. Uh, they do a lot of damage when they get into the human body. Uh, I've never shot one. I probably shot 5,000 practice rounds. I've never shot one defensive round. I'll probably go to my grave never shooting one defensive round. But you carried the gun just in case. All your, did all your targets have a the Titan Tire logo on it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's a really good idea. <laughs> so, um, yeah, w- with this, which I now always carry my burner, I feel like if I get into a situation where I need to use it, I'm not going to hesitate. The launcher is extremely accurate. I'm more accurate with my burner than I am with my Glock because there's no uh, uh, kickback. It does. You know, so, it doesn't recoil. So coming from, you know, like the tire industry and like finance, why for you get into the self-defense industry? It just seems like one of the most extreme industries to just jump start in. Look, somebody once said to me that you should change your career every 10 years. And it wasn't intentional, but, you know, I've sort of been on the track of every 10 to 15 years changing my career. It's phenomenally exciting to learn something new. You know, if I get involved with something, I want to be the most knowledgeable guy in the room. And it's just fun. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm, one of, the, I'm one of these guys that, you know, my favorite channels are the History Channel and Curiosity and Discovery. And I just like learning new stuff. And learning a new industry was great. But the business principles that I applied in all of my businesses apply here. The same. So manufacturing techniques are manufacturing techniques. I mean, there's, you know, I need a different research and development team, but the process is the same. Marketing, the process is the same. So, you know, a lot of what I've learned over the years, I can apply to this business. And at the same time, I have the fun of learning something new. And I have to say, of all the businesses I've been in, this is the first one that's really kind of sexy. I was going to say, this is probably the most chaotic. You've probably met some crazy people at these gun shows. Yeah, and, and look, we've and worked said, with... hey man, you should buy the burner. We, 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 we can't really trust you with a real gun. <laughs> we worked with a lot of law enforcement officers, and I've done a lot of training with uh, law enforcement. And, um, you know, one of the questions we get a lot is, why are there so many, you know, fatal shootings? Why are the police using their uh, sidearm? And what most people don't understand is, they're trained when they shoot to shoot to kill. They're not trained to shoot to wound. It's just not part of their training. It's not like the movies where, you know, say hit them in the legs. They're also trained that when somebody's within 21 feet, that they're now in the uh, zone where they're authorized to use deadly force. It's a fatal range. Yeah, and the reason it's 21 feet is that they determined that at 21 feet, uh, an assailant could get to the officer and take his gun away from him before he could actually deploy it. And I said, you know, that sounds crazy. I mean, you can't do that. So I went through training where we used a simulation Glock. These are, you know, blue rubber guns. And he says, okay, pull it out your holster, point it at me. I pull it out before I can really get it aimed at him. I'm on the ground, the gun is pointed at my head. I said, no, 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 do that again, every time. Because, you know, if you're trained to do that, the leverage that you have on a gun, grabbing it from this side and pulling it out of somebody's hand is much more than the leverage you have holding it here. And at the same time, you get to break their finger in the trigger. So that's always fun. So 
Do you think this product could be a replacement for lethal weapons nationally? No, no, it's definitely not a replacement, and we've never sold it that way. You know, we think it. Well, it, well, I know that's your market. You want, you think gun owners will buy this no, too? But, but I'm talking about progressive people who will be like, you know what? We hate gun violence. We hate uh, police force. Maybe this is an alternative. Look, the police have what's called a continuum of force, and they start off with a voice command. You know, drop the weapon, get on the ground, halt, halt, <laughs> whistle baton, nightstick, uh, mace or pepper spray, taser, all the way up to their sidearm. Now, unfortunately, what's happened a lot is the police sort of skip all these steps and go straight to their lethal weapon. And we think that there should be, you know, increased training to get police to, to really use the continuum of force. Oh, so this is on the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. So, But we think that for civilians, they should also have access to a continuum of force. So most people have either, you know, pepper spray or a baseball bat, which is close quarter combat. And, you know, you miss with the pepper spray, you're, you're in deep trouble now because the, this guy's on top of you. With the Berna, you can uh, defend yourself at standoff distance of 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet. So before the situation escalates, the other thing is because of the form factor, in other words, it looks like a gun, 95% of the time, that will be sufficient. So we've already had a number of real-world incidents. We've only been marketing this and selling this for uh, around five months. Um, but we've already had a number of people tell us that they've used it in, in the real world. More than 50% of them never fired it. They just pointed it at somebody, and that was sufficient to deter the attacker. In a few cases, they fired the hard plastic rounds, which... Which is what? So uh, the rounds we have, we have hard plastic. We have... Uh, what are these? These are, these are uh, Berna Black. You wanna, and that's you want to just hold it up? Yeah. So this is filled with OCCS. Oh, no, these, these are actually the hard plastic rounds. So if you can see this, uh, this is just a, Looks a, like a hard plastic. Looks like a BB ball. on steroids. Yeah. And it's three grams of, you know, a very hard plastic. And it, it hurts like hell, frankly. Did you hear how that clinked? Like, imagine, and how fast does this thing shoot FPS? About 300 feet per second. So we've got a mag release right here. Okay. This indicates that there's still one in the chamber. Okay. Watch where you point that thing, Bri. Okay. So I load my launcher with two hard plastic rounds. And then the third round is the chemical irritant round. So if I can stop somebody just with a hard plastic round without deploying the chemical irritant, that's preferable. If they keep coming, then I hit them with a the chemical irritant round. Within a second, they're blinded. They, Boom, but they can't see. And I don't care how tough a guy you are. If you can't see, you can't continue the attack. And again, if you go online, you'll see uh, some of my employees get hit with this. And uh, you know it's incredibly effective. So, so how many hard plastic rounds until the, the chemical? Well, you can load it any way you want. I, I load mine with three chemical rounds at the bottom, two hard plastic rounds at the top, and I can fire off a quick two rounds, and hopefully that's sufficient to dissuade anybody. And when you see me get hit with it, you know, you'd have to be a pretty motivated assailant to continue attack when, it, you, when you see that. Well, I'm thinking of like the dude on bath salts. You remember that dude in Miami? You know what I'm talking about? That no. guy in bath salts was like biting people's faces off. 
Yeah. Uh, they couldn't stop that guy. Yeah. So, and, so a guy like that, you're going to have to hit him with a chemical irritant round. So that. And so what is the effect of the chemical irritant? The chemical irritant round causes you to have an intense burning sensation in your eyes. It's like intense pepper spray. Yeah. So if you've seen somebody get hit with pepper spray, but in addition to pepper spray blinds you, this gets into your respiratory system. So you're in respiratory distress. You're, you know, you're having a very hard time breathing, so you can't continue an attack. You can't see. And the idea is simply to have enough time to get out of harm's way. So these type of rounds have been used by law enforcement for years. Tens of millions have been sold, uh, primarily in uh, correctional facilities. But the difference is that they have a different mission than we have. Their mission is to gain compliance. In other words, drop the knife, put it on the ground. So they're not trying to incapacitate somebody. Our rounds are 10 times stronger than what law enforcement uses because our job is to incapacitate somebody, to make sure they can't continue the attack. You got me sold, man. The pitch is awesome. How many times have you done it in the past five months? Yeah, this is only the second time. Oh, no way. <laughs> Dude, practicing for months. So question, this is a somewhat sensitive territory, but could teachers hold these in schools? You know what? One of our board members is uh, from Florida, and she's um, has been talking to the Department of Education down there. If you remember, after the Parkland shooting, they passed a bill allowing teachers to carry firearms in the school if they're licensed. Very few teachers actually want to carry a firearm in the school, and and frankly, I think it's a bad idea because if you introduce you know tens of thousands of firearms, there will be some mistakes. sort of mistake made. I mean, whether the gun is dropped and it or discharges kids. or a kid steals it, you know, I, I think it's a bad idea. On the other hand, you know, right now they tell the teachers to, you know, throw books at the assailant. I think, you know, arming the teachers with something like a burna can allow them to actually defend their kids and, and again, buy enough time for the school resource officer um, or the police to get there and and to dispatch the assailant with a lethal firearm. So, yeah, and also, I mean, at least for the first five, ten years, this is in market before people are calm and they, they understand the product. A teacher holding up a gun to an assailant might be enough. Yeah, again, that's the reason that the form factor is a gun, and that's the reason we developed something to look like a gun. And we're hopeful that at some point... Uh, some of the major manufacturers will have us develop a, a white label product for them that looks like one of their pistols. Hey, you guys been awfully quiet. Sorry to shut you out. Questions? I'd love to hear them. I mean, you, <clears throat> you mentioned how the U.S. is one of the only nations where it's the law enforcement is kind of segregated by town, whatever. So, have you? Do you guys move in internationally at all? Like, are you? pushing yourselves to the law enforcement and other nations or are you trying to make it more of a consumer product and, and would that be an easier pitch for you no look law enforcement is a tough pitch no matter where you are it's a long decision making process it's got budgetary constraints you know the low hanging fruit is consumers and right now the big issue for us frankly is ramping up production so uh, the uh, second quarter of this year I think we produced 144 launchers uh, the third quarter, we produced 1,689 launchers. Uh, this quarter, we're going to produce around 3,000 launchers. So you're and doing your job, man. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be up to 6,000 next quarter. So right now, we're really focused on the low-hanging fruit. And we think 
we think there's three legs to our stool. It's consumer, it's private security, and it's law enforcement. And it's going to be in that order. Law enforcement last. Law enforcement last. Although we did get our very first order last week from private security, a large, uh, actually, uh, healthcare organization that has a lot of urgent care centers and has uh, armed guards. Um, they bought 25 as a test. Uh, and we're hopeful that this will lead to, you know, significantly larger orders. And we actually got our first law enforcement order last week as well. It was just for two launchers to try. Were you pumped? Yeah, you know, I, I was pumped, although this is not really the launcher designed for law enforcement. I mean, this is a consumer version. We will be coming out with a slightly more powerful version for law enforcement. It'll uh, shoot a little bit faster. It will carry more rounds in the magazine. Um, it'll have uh, a few other bells and whistles that are not on the consumer version. And it'll be a little bit more expensive. But with regard to other countries, we have gotten some large inquiries from law enforcement. And when you which, talk- Which country specifically? I, I, I can't say, to be honest okay. with you. I mean, we, we're a public company and there's okay. only certain things I can I say. I say, if it's Russia, you might, you gotta tell somebody, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, and there are limitations as to where we can sell this because it's considered a crime control device. So for example, we could not sell it into China. Um, but we you can sell You don't wanna it. go back there, right? Yeah, we, we can sell it easily. <laughs> into every NATO country and and most other countries as well. And, you know, we've gotten some interesting inquiries, but these are for, you know, uh, one of them is in the Middle East. And if you look at the Middle East, for example, I was, I, the last time I was over, I was in Oman. They have the Royal Omani Police. So all the police are part of the Royal Omani Police. You make one sale, you've got the whole country. So I think like wearing all gold, you gotta make some like gold burners. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to customize it, but uh, I, I do think that that's going to be sort of you know several years down the road before we're going after the law enforcement market. And I think you know you're right. At some point, the public is going to demand that law enforcement really focus more on less lethal or non-lethal. In the U.S., almost every law enforcement officer carries a lethal weapon. Only about ten percent carry you know non-lethal weapons. Um, on the other hand, when you go outside the U.S., it's almost completely reversed. So most law enforcement officers do not carry a lethal weapon. Only SWAT and, you know, rapid response teams um, carry lethal weapons. And most law enforcement officers, beat cops, just carry a, a non-lethal weapon. Big Fresh. I see my great question. Big Fresh, anything? Um, <clears throat> so how long have you um, been running this company? Or SDI to start. Yeah, yeah, security device is actually the name of the company, and our stock symbol is uh, SDEV Sierra Delta Echo Victor. Okay. Um, oh. But uh, I, I've been the CEO since March. Uh, I was the executive chairman of the company, so I was involved in sort of the strategic aspects of the company, but not in day-to-day -day management prior to that. So I came on board as uh, described as a consultant and then became chairman of the board. And now I'm, you know, chairman and CEO. He's got a, sorry, I think you got a follow up, right? Yeah. So compared to, um, you know, a polar opposite industry like, you know, tire manufacturing, do you find that there are any like um, similarities or are they like just two completely different beasts that you kind of have to like learn to control on their own? Uh, look, it, uh, there's two big uh, issues with any company like ours. In other words, a company that manufactures a product. 
and that's manufacturing and sales. And most of the techniques that you use for manufacturing are the same no matter what you're manufacturing. Um, you know, I guess maybe if, uh, if you're manufacturing something that's completely chemically oriented or food process, um, you know, it might be more difficult. But this product is not dramatically different in terms of the skill sets required uh, from a manufacturing standpoint. It is the first B2C, business-to-consumer business, that I've run. Most of my other businesses were B2B. So we sold other businesses, yeah. we sold dealers. So there is a little bit of a difference. You know, we've never had to, you know, and, and of course, we never had to use social media. Um, you know, at my, by the time I exited my last business 12 years ago, it was sort of just the beginning of the real social media influencer trend. Mm -hmm. And of course, we weren't going to get Kim Kardashian to promote our farm tires anyways. Yeah. I was going to say, I think you should um, talk to some rappers about um, collaborating on some brand deals. You know, I, I never <laughs> it's a, it's knew, fact. I never knew that Berna was a slang yeah, term used by yeah, the rappers. Thinking, yeah. One of our, um, uh, one of our younger employees told me about it, but what does it mean? It's okay. like, you know, have you heard of like heater? Like it's like a, Oh, it's my burner. It's like a yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, it's my burner. Yeah, it's my burner. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the way we came up with the name, the inventor wanted to call it burner. B U R N E R. Because the if sensation is intense burning. Your eyes are burning, your throat's burning, your skin is burning. If you Google burner, there's like 43 million results. So we're saying, what clever way is there to say burner? And first off, we live in Boston. We don't say burner. We say it's a burner. It's a freaking burner. The other thing is, uh, there's a little bit of a self-promotion here. My name is spelled B-R-Y-A-N. It's a name flip. It's an anagram of my name. Anagram. So like that's the, how we... Like the Da Vinci Code. Yes. So that's how we came up with it. And uh, But I never knew it was a, a rap term for a, a gun. There's also an artist named Burna Boy who Abu put me on yeah. to. But yeah, my Burna. I forgot Abu. Great point. <laughs> C-Mac, great question. So here's another question. So it's a $350 price point. And so... A young professional could afford that $350 purchase. You know what I'm saying? Some making like $60,000, $70,000 a year, you know, they'd be like, okay, I could buy that. Who's your, your main target market with something like this that isn't gun owners? Like, who do you want to really hit? Because I could see our friends like being like, yeah, I got my strap on me, but it's like it'd be a toy. Yeah, look, I, I think that the market is, you're right, is an older market for the most part. I think that when we've sold younger people, it's usually fathers buying something for their daughter. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot, uh, although our sales have been about 85% male and 15% female, we think there's a big chunk of that where fathers are buying it for their uh, daughters or for their wives. A lot of people have said, you know, my wife won't use my gun when I'm away, but I... I want her to have something. So uh, I do think it's, it's, it is expensive, but it's, it's not expensive relative to a real handgun. Not at all. And also, if I went out with a girl for the first time, she had a burner in her purse, there would not be a second date. <laughs> Brian, that would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, we had, a, we had an ad that we ran uh, when we first started out, and it's a very awkward young man with a very beautiful young woman, and she says, did you bring protection? And he opens up his sport right. jacket, and he's got his burner. And he says, yeah, I did. Who did Who did all the creative on that? 
Uh, we had uh, we have a creative director in house. Cool. Yeah. So, what is it for you personally? What is the the next eight weeks bring as the, the fiscal year is ending? Well, look. As I began to say, when you when you run a business like ours, it is really important to keep production and sales in balance. When one gets ahead of the other in either direction, it's a big problem. So, you know, if production gets ahead of sales, it's clearly a problem. You have to lay people off. These are highly trained people. To get them back is difficult to ramp production back up. So once you get to a certain production level, you don't want to go backwards. On the other hand, if sales come in too quickly and we're telling people it's five months before you can deliver the product, we're going to have a lot of pissed off people. So we're looking at uh, starting a second manufacturing facility here in the United States. So my focus over the next six months is to be up and running with a U.S. manufacturing facility so that we can get production not at, you know, uh, 2,000 a month, but at 20,000 a month. And um, You want to scale. Yeah, we, we, we want to scale. We need to scale. We'd like to bring this out nationally. We've been talking to some marketing people about, you know, uh, doing some large nationwide campaigns. Um, we haven't you know, we have got a very positive response to this. Almost everybody we show this to is, is positive. Uh, we've got a 4.9 star rating out of five stars. On what? You know, on just our Yachtpo. So we send out, you know. Uh, I know Yachtpo. I got it set up for a friend of ours, man. Yeah, we had, you know, we just ask if you'll review the product. We send it out 10 days after they get it. And so p- people like it when they see it. They like it when they get it. And, um, you know, we think that the market is literally millions. So there's approximately 90 million gun owners in the United States. And I always Just ask buy them, a burner. Yeah, and I always Come ask on, the question, man. you know, am I 1%? Am I 5%? Is there 10% like me? 10% is 9 million. So even if we're making these things at a quarter million a year, it's going to take us a long time to fill the demand. There's 120 million households in the U.S., you know, how, how many would want to have a burner right in their, you know, in their drawer Here's at the their, pitch. you know, Let's hear it. it's holiday time yeah, when somebody comes to the door and you've got a, yeah. And what a good Christmas present. Exactly. <laughs> well, a good stocking stuffer. It'd be great. Um, so quick rewind. So I'm guessing now you're 58. Yeah. We, we'll wrap soon. Are you 58? I'm 61. Okay. I was close. That was a compliment. When you were just starting out at law school, did you imagine you'd have such a, a successful business career? Did you always know you you kind of had it? or you, you know what? I'm not sure I would say that I've had a successful business career. I did preside over the second largest bankruptcy in Massachusetts uh, the year we went bankrupt. That's a, that's a win in itself, right? Yeah. Well, only if you're Donald Trump. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, but I always knew... Uh, that this is what I wanted to do. And I always had confidence uh, that I would be successful. I think, to be honest with you, I probably had more confidence at 24 than I have at 61. You know, now that I'm a little, you know, uh, I'm a battle-scarred veteran. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're when you're 24 years old, you believe you can do anything. And, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of stuff that, in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have done if I had known then what I know now. But I'm glad I did it. We were successful. And I think a lot of young entrepreneurs, you know, the, the thing they have going for them is they're, they're willing to take risks. They have a lot of confidence in themselves. 
you know, sure, some will fail, uh, but, you know, dust yourself back up, back off and get up and do it again. And, uh, you know, I have to say I, I chose the right path for myself. And, you know, my dad always said to me, if you uh, find something you like to do, you'll never work a day in your life because every day will be fun. And, you know, it was great advice. I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. You know, I don't think a lot of people have the uh, intestinal fortitude for the ups and downs that go with it. Especially early, right? Yeah, but, but look, I mean, I think that's the time to take the risks. Well, I mean, the, for you and your experience, have the ups and downs been most tumultuous and severe at the inception of your companies? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think early on, you know, it's I describe it as, you know, a ladder where the first rung is too high to reach. And you need help or you need a little bit of luck or you need some way to get on that first rung. Once you're up on the ladder, climbing the rest of the ladder becomes easier. But getting something started is is very, very difficult. And getting it started from nothing, you know, I, I really take my hat off to uh, all these young entrepreneurs in the tech space. You know, it's just simply amazing to me knowing what it takes to scale a business. When you look at these firms that, you know, over a couple of years, you know, particularly those businesses that produce something, you know, are doing billions of dollars in sales. So how are you going to get that? How are you going to get like a, a big tech startup crossover with the burnout? Because you're in the same area as like Cambridge. Is that on your mind at all? Or? Well, I, I, look, I do think that there's a lot of interesting tech that we'd like to build into subsequent versions of the burner. I think, you know, we're looking at building in a camera. So like the police, you know, you could record what happened. because or selfie cam before you pop somebody. <laughs> like, yo, watch this dog smack. Yeah. Or, or something that ties to your phone and calls 911 when you fire it so that you could put it on just a practice position where it wouldn't call 911. But if you were out using it, you know, for self-defense, you'd clearly want law enforcement to come to the scene after you uh, hit somebody with the, the burner. Okay, one more quick question. You guys have any other questions? Hey, one I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Well, Connor, thank you. I really enjoyed coming out here and talking with you guys. So what... um. For anybody who's looking to get started in the personal security industry, which is so specialized, what are a couple of things that you'd recommend they learn beforehand? Look, I, I think personal security industry, you know, is a is a broad, broad industry ranging from, you know, uh, things like the ring doorbell, which I thought was just, you know, ingenious and, you know, has been an enormous success. You know, there's been a lot of alarm systems that have copied that. But if you're going to get into the segment that we're in, you really need to have some law enforcement background or private security background because it is a regulated industry. And, um, you know, it, there, there's a lot of specific knowledge for the security industry. What you can do is we've got a Berna ambassador program. Uh, we just got a call today, interestingly, from somebody who's setting up their own Berna ambassador website where they're going to try to sell it. And what it does is it gives everybody who buys with your yeah. code a discount and gives a I'm familiar fee. with the world of social media, man. Okay. Well, I wasn't. So this was <laughs> this was so new to me. I said, wow, this is great. It's smart, yeah. Incent incentivizes salespeople. What has been more crucial to the growth of a couple of your companies, your ability to personally sell or your ability to lead and manage a team? 
yeah, I, I would say that it's it's probably leading and managing a team. Uh, you know, I uh, I'm not a particularly good salesperson. Oh, Brian, um, you killed it today, man. No, I, I, I you know, I, these I believe in this product, and I'm just you know being honest with you about how I feel. But I, I'm not you know a, a salesperson by nature. Um, as I said in the beginning, I like bossing people around. <laughs> so, you know, ma- managing a team, getting all the parts to work together, um, you know, is really critical. Uh, we've got research and development. We have production. We have quality control, distribution, sales, even accounting, just to make sure that, you know, uh, you're, you're getting your books and records straight, uh. legal compliance. So getting everybody to work together, I, I think, is a, a more important skill set, f- at least for me. You like being the facilitator. Yeah, the conductor. I like it. Okay. Any last questions from the two handsome men out back? I just want to say one more thing because I had to expedite it because I'm a salesman myself at the start. But these GDP... Shoot, I already blew this pitch. These GDP season pieces, the one I'm going to give you, I think they're the best independent apparel in Boston. I think they're wildly comfy. They're designed by a great guy and they're sold by an even more handsome man myself and i would love to sell them to anybody and i will show up anywhere that's the one thing about me you guys will get it i might be mr young anderson cooper up here but i'll really go sell you anything anywhere nonetheless brian this is how we start and end the episode so you say hi your name right hi it's brian oh don't say it yet oh hi your name and this is my golden hour we're gonna put that at the start then hi your name that was my golden hour we're gonna put that at the end Okay, we ready? Yeah, which camera are you on us on, Big Fresh? This one. Okay, whenever you're ready, Big Bry. Hi, this is Brian Gans, and this is my golden hour. Nice. Hi, this is Brian Gans, and that was my golden hour. That was perfectly executed, man. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. And uh, we'll send you one of these, Connor, and I expect you to be wearing it with, you know, when I'll, you're I'll out do it there. Every, every episode. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't say anything mean about the show, man. Perfect. Great. Thank you.